0: Okay, so welcome again. Um, I wanted to uh, continue with this uh, look at um, uh, some aspects of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. As you might recall, last week I talked about that. There's so many things in that fourth foundation of mindfulness that the Buddha is trying to point us to 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 get to see. You know, he talks about the five aggregates, he talks about the sense basis, he talks about the five hindrances, the factors of enlightenment, the four noble truths, you know. It's like uh, <laughs> you get this you get this long list and you oh you know, your head just starts spinning with what it is that we think we need to understand and see. Uh, You know, and it can feel that way. It's just to go ahead and and say that out front. But really, the the whole idea of it is, the the whole idea of all of these lists and these various um, things that one is supposed to be seeing, in essence, is to help us sort out what it is that we're seeing when we're actually looking. You know, you're sitting here in meditation and all these various states of mind are arising. What is it? You know, what's going on with all that? So the whole basis of practice is just, if you will, I like to put it in a couple of words. It's relax and attend. Relax and attend. Just settle down (laughs) and receive the various states that arise. You know, that's the rule. That's the bottom line of practice. And so all this learning about mind states and all that is just to help us do that, to help us do that even better. So we need to do that in a way it's got to have an emotional tone to it that basically says, don't hold any biases about what it is that you see. Don't have any opinion or view about what it is that arises, either in yourself or in other people. Just view it all as the same. That's huge right there. You know, that's the that's process of getting to a point where you can view it the same, but that's why we call it practice. We're practicing to hold things with that quality of heart, with that quality of mind. And then I see it, you know, I've experienced it sort of like life begins to feel more like a dance. You know, it's like, it's a question of um, what mind state arises and can you take it as a dance partner? <laughs> can, you, can you just sort of, you know, you, you begin to settle into it. You're not, you're not fighting it, you're not resisting it, you're not wishing it was some other way, you're not caught up in it. But you're dancing with it. It's like, oh, okay, well now it moves this way and now it moves that way. You try not to step on each other's toes. You just kind of feel the rhythm of the various states of mind. See what they do, how they pull one way, how they pull another, what it feels like to be in each of those places. And then it all gets very interesting. You begin to get a sense of this teaching of the factors of enlightenment, you know, because the the factors of enlightenment include this quality of like if there's an interest, there's a there's a delight, there's a happiness in this kind of looking, you know. It's like if you say, well, what what is, what are they all about? Well, this is what it's about, you know. It's, it, I'm interested. I want to see what's going on. Um, it's just a case of noticing what happens in the in the mind and what it feels like when you're in it. And everything that needs to happen will happen from that. That, that's the, that takes a lot of trust. And that takes a certain re-education of the mind just to get to that point where you understand that you don't have to do the practice. You know, this sense of me and myself and the one who's in control It it, it takes a long time for that to get whittled down. That gets is going to is bound to get applied to practice. You know, we think that we are doing it, and really all we're doing is dancing, just dancing with the various states of mind and attending and learning and seeing what's going on, trusting this organic process. Um, and it's, it's a process of waking up. It's a very organic process. There's not a lot of pushing and shoving that goes on in it. If it does, then that just disrupts the whole process. So if you try to do the practice, then you interrupt it. You interrupt the flow of it all. And you can misread things. You know, isn't that true? I mean, you know, this sense of me, who's who know. I know what's going on, I know how to do this, you know. That is one of the biggest barriers to actually seeing what is going on. You know, it's like this this idea is so strong in the mind. And this is especially true when it comes to the mental hindrances. So our tendency is to push them and and to uh, make them wrong. You know, there's something wrong. Like the first thing we do with a, a mental hindrance is call it a mental hindrance, you know? <laughs> And then it's, it's like this awful thing, which I, I think the name is unfortunate, you know? But it's, it's this awful thing that you have to get rid of because it's in the way, it's hindering everything. This is not right practice. This is not the attitude to have even with these difficult states of mind. We have to learn to give them some room and, and just to not crowd them. And I think this takes a certain amount of trust. You know. So what I have for you tonight is some stories, just really some stories about practice, my own and other people's, where we're we're learning to work with mind states and not be too quick to say that we know what they are and to be on top of them and to try to fix it. And then you begin to see some very interesting things happen. Some very interesting things will open up. In, In a way, we're looking at discerning in regard to the hindrances getting a sense of of our own inner wisdom with regard to them. So I I have an example or two for each one. Um, First, uh, the the so-called mental hindrance of sensual desire. Uh, I really came to see how one works with this in a more skillful way um, during a, a long retreat at the Insight Meditation Society. And it, it really developed in the most uncanny way where I, it was about um, my relationship with the cups and bowls, the rack of, of dishes in, uh, in the dining hall. And uh, what happened right before I got there is that a very good friend of mine who's a potter had uh, made uh, some fabulous cups and bowls <laughs> and she had just donated them to IMS. And uh, so I didn't know that. But here I was on the first day of retreat and um, getting ready to get my cups and bowls for the meal, and there were Seldon's cups and bowls. And I was like, "Oh, this wonderful happy moment, you know." And I, I took one of uh, each. There, there weren't many, so you know, I, t- uh, uh, I was fortunate to be one of the first ones in line that got this beautiful cup and bowl to enjoy my meal with. And it was all so delightful, you know, just that wonderful feeling of, what, I mean. Some people this doesn't do it to, but it does it to me. It's like wonderful dishes, you know. <laughs> I loved it. And and so uh, I, what I didn't know uh, is, you know, I did, wasn't even aware of this particularly. I was just completely in it, you know, just, uh, and this is what we call sort of indulging it. In. I didn't, did no, no perspective on it, no seeing this happening, just being completely in it. And so unbeknownst to me, this became sort of a driving uh, course, you know, for the retreat, and uh, with each day, um, you know, I would get this cup and bowl, and uh, or another one of hers that I liked equally as much, and then the meals were just all so pleasant, you know, but it then uh, some some days, one day I remember I sat down next to somebody who made disgusting noises when they ate. And here I was with my beautiful cup and bowl, you know, and my fancy little napkin and then sitting next to somebody like this, you know, (laughs) it was just like, it was like disgusting. And I was so angry that they were ruining my happy meal, you know, (laughs) not seeing through any of this, but this, you know, this was just my happiness depended on certain conditions and the conditions weren't happening, you know, can you feel that? And then like in the days when I got there late or somebody else got them, you know, contra- incredible contempt. You know, that pig, you know, what are they doing with the cup and bowl? I want the cup and bowl. Or, you know, just kind of, it would ruin my day, you know? that just that whole experience of having it totally ruined my day because I didn't have my cup and bowl, you know? So as uh, over time, you know, as you do on retreat, you watch this. And, you know, I began to notice and and, uh, this sort of leaning, you know, I could sort of become, I started to become aware of it way, you know, I was way back in line. I wasn't even at the rack of dishes yet, but there would be this leaning, you know, and that's when I started to pick up. As your mindfulness grows, you start to get a sense of this, like, wow, look at this, you know, I'm I'm reaching for it and needing it and dependent on that in order to be happy. And it's already happening. And the, all of the tor- mental torment that would go on. I mean, for, you know, 18, 18 people back in line. And that line moved slowly. You know, the, the torment that would go on in that period of time was amazing. It's fascinating to watch it. You know, would I get it? Wouldn't I get it? What would happen if I didn't? That one over there, I know she's going to take it because she's a real porker, you know. And it was just stuff, that kind of thing would be going on. It was, a, it was amazing to watch it. So, after I saw this, then I did what we often do. It's like, I hated it. I hated this mental state, you know, and I, you know, who's the porker? You're the porker. You know, you can't live without this cup and bowl. And then it became um, this battle inside where, you know, no, you can't habit. You know, be like this with myself as I would approach it, you know, and then I would, went through this period where I would make myself take the ugliest, you know, find the ones that are chipped, find the ones that are broken, find the ones that are like, there was this one that was like turquoise and olive green, you know, and no matter what you ate off of it, it was disgusting. It was just this <laughs> awful color, you know, so I would make myself take that, you know, and that's it, this incredible battle like this is the unawakened self getting in on the act and saying oh i know what to do about sensual desire smack yourself around a bit <laughs> and and that'll get that'll get you out of it so but you can't you can't force these states to go away you know but that's that's what we do so you know when i stopped then that thank goodness that phase began to settle down and i stopped doing that and then there were days where even where I didn't even notice, you know, I didn't even notice what cups and bowl I got. It just kinda of all got boring and it didn't matter, you know, it was just not part of what was going on in my life. Sometimes I just forget about all about it completely. But but gradually what happened was I just began to develop an attitude of mind that was okay with sensual desire. You know, it was okay with the wanting. And uh, you know, just kind of letting it go. And, and from that perspective, once you get there, then you can sort of see how it operates. And you can feel the torment of being caught in states and the torment of hating states. You know, then you're starting to look at it in a completely different level. You know, you're not in it and you're not hating it. You're in this uh, equanimous posture in relation to it. And then it gets really interesting. You know, you learn a lot about States and how they operate, you know uh, and what what happened was um, as, as I watched this, I could see the various impulses that were coming up around just that moment because it was still happening it's not like it wasn't happening anymore, you know, but now I'm watching it and I'm interested in it, and from that perspective, I began to get these see these really refined just little delights in my heart. It was like I would see Selden's Cups and Bowls and I would get happy, you know. I thought, wow. Then it got down to this point where it was like, you know what's going on here? I like pretty things. I like pretty things, you know. And that realization was like, well, that's okay. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with that. That's Okay. You know, that's clearly within the Buddhist teachings. You know, he said, we like things and we don't like things. That's set in place. That's, that's a karmic response. It's fine. You know, there's nothing you can do about that. That's the way it is, you know. And from that perspective, it, it was like suddenly, you know, you're just kind of with pleasure. And there's a pleasant moment. And the heart delights in it. And an interesting thing happened when I began to see it in that way and be okay with it, that I began to notice that, to even use that pleasure, like that pleasure, that delight. See, we miss those kinds of moments because we grab at it and we pig out on it, you know. And uh, if we just kind of rest in them, they actually, it's like, oh, things just get so soft and easy and gentle. It's like, oh, I like that. Oh, And, you know, your heart gets open, your, your body gets loose, you relax. Like, there's pleasure. There is pleasure. So it's like a, such a non-Buddhist thing to say, you know. But I think we miss this. I mean, Ajahn Amaro says Buddha was the ultimate pleasure seeker. You know, it, it's certainly referring to nirvana, but also referring to, when you let go of desire, there's a lot more pleasure. There's a lot more happy moments and you can just kind of be with them. And then you begin to get a sense of what he's talking about when he says that joy and a happy heart are absolutely essential for the meditation to go well. (laughs) You know, and if we're hating those kinds of moments or pigging out on them, then we're missing an opportunity for a factor of enlightenment to get going, you know it has to be, we have to be happy. <laughs> you know, the idea that meditation should be happy, somehow this escapes us, you know, mm-hmm. but but here it is. And so y- there are moments like this and we can turn them in the interest of our own practice. They can be really, really helpful. And this, this reminded me of a, of a story of, um, that Upandita told once on a retreat about Uh, a a woman named Matika Mata. I don't know if you've ever heard of her, but she was was the mother of Matika and uh, living at the time uh, of the Buddha around then, I think. And um, this is a story where um, she was living on the um, edge of a forest uh, where some 20 or 60 monks were meditating. And um, she used to get up every morning and, and fix food for them for their alms round. And um, she would do this as a dutiful, devoted Buddhist, uh, you know, for a long time. And at one point, she decided, well, you know, I think I'd like to get some teaching. And so she asked them when they came on arms round if she could come out and get some teaching. And they said, okay, you know. And so she did. And very, uh, she she studied the teachings and did the practice. And very soon, very in short order, she became an arhat. And she also developed um, psychic powers. And so she was interested because she, she began to notice that the monks didn't seem very happy. And um, so she used her psychic powers to kind of go into their minds and to discern why it was that they weren't happy. And she discovered, much to her surprise, that um, they weren't happy because they weren't getting the foods they liked to eat and so she she decided to get up early every morning and she used her psychic powers to go into their minds and found out what what each one what would make each one happy that day and she prepared that many different meals and then when they came on arms round she she gave them the food And, of course, as all good Buddhist stories go, you know, they all very quickly became enlightened, you know. (laughs) But I think it's an an interesting story, you know, whether it's folklore or not. The point in it is that um, this happiness is important and that it wasn't a case that sometimes we're too quick to call it desire, you know, sensual desire and, you know, do this with it, you know. But I don't think it can be said that the monks were filled with sensual desire, you know. They, they just lacked joy in their lives. They lacked joy in their practice. And this was one way that it was facilitated. So, you know, it, it's okay to enjoy things. In fact, it's, um, it, it's really, it, it's important if we realize that it, not only is it good, it can't be avoided. You know, pleasure happens and one can open one's heart to it and, and find that it, it, you know, it just will really fuel the practice in many beautiful ways. It, it only becomes a hindrance when we become paralyzed by our desire, when the thing that gives us happiness, we've got to have it, you know, or, or when we get caught in these endless loops of wanting, like I was doing with the cups and bowls. So just discerning in this way in relation to sensual desire They don't be too quick to call things, hindrances and to stomp on them and make them something bad that we have to get rid of. It's interesting because in the the process of doing that, you might actually be squashing a factor of enlightenment. You know, it's fascinating. So um, here's one about aversion. I was talking to somebody uh, not long ago who um, had a very interesting story to tell. He said that um, at one point um, in the past year, his practice had gone all to hell. He said his sitting practice, he had just totally given up on it. And he stopped sitting and stopped sitting for nine months. But he was a seasoned practitioner like yourselves. And so um, it was interesting because he didn't, it didn't worry him too much. You know, yeah, he thought, oh, he went through some of that dialogue, oh, I should keep sitting. But he was the kind of practitioner who's just always looking. You know, it's a 24-7 thing, you know, just always watching what's going on with the mind. And so he figured whatever this was, whatever this uh, log jam that had come up in his practice, he would he would see it. But he trusted it enough just to not force the, to make himself sit when it wasn't, it just wasn't happening for him. So he did, in, in essence, I guess what I'm saying is he didn't, he didn't really have a bias about it. He just gave it room, you know, he just kind of opened his, okay, this is interesting, <laughs> you know, practicing for 15 years and all of a sudden I stop, well, let's just watch it, let's see what happens. So uh, what happened was that over, over that period of time, Over the nine months, he began to notice throughout the course of the day that he was a lot more irritable, that he was a lot more restless, that he was given to getting caught in difficult states a lot more easily, that he wasn't very focused. And what he ended up doing is is actually seeing in a very direct way the negative results of, of letting go of a daily sitting practice, you know. And it was it was fascinating to him because basically what he realized is that what he was resisting and this was something that was kind of up in his life in other areas was this, he was like rebelling against all of the shoulds in his mind you know, you should do this you should do that you shouldn't do this you shouldn't do that and that practice was actually one of those you know, something that he should do and as long as he was holding it that way um he wasn't going to the depths with it you know it was like it' was like we can have attachment to ideas, even good ideas, and it's good i mean that can drive practice for a while in the beginning, but at some point it's got to mature you got we have to drop out of this sort of immature or superficial reason for sitting, and it's got to be kind of owned at a much deeper level. And his giving this experience, the space in his life, actually made that possible for him. And and he saw in a very direct way that he needed to sit. (laughs) You know, that it was beneficial to him. And it wasn't because somebody said it was or because he believed Um, the the, the various teachings or the teachers is because he got it. You know, he got it from deep within. And he wouldn't have seen that if he had forced himself. You know, he said, boy, you know, I I could have made myself keep sitting and plug on through. And maybe that would have, he, he might have seen it still, I don't know. But the point is, because he was mature enough and spacious enough not to pounce on his state of mind, he learned a very important lesson about practice and about life. So now his reasons were deeper. There wasn't any should. It was like he said, he said, it's amazing. I go past my cushion sometimes. He had a little shrine in his living room. And he said, I go past it sometimes. And it's like, you know, it, it pulls me. You know, it's like this magnet. And it's the way he always wanted to be with his sitting practice, but he never actually felt it, you know. And now it had, it had cultivated of its own accord, you know, from this spaciousness. So having a certain maturity in the way that we hold even things like this, you know, and this, I realize this is, this can be risky, you know, but we have to be mature enough to trust our own process our, and our own <coughs> practice. Just keep looking. I think that we're looking at what's going on, a lot more than we give ourselves credit for, a whole lot more. We're much more aware of these subtle states than we think, and you know we have to have a lot of more confidence in how we're holding the practice. And a situation like this was very very helpful for him. I realize I've got a lot more, but maybe I'll just do one more. We'll see. <laughs> Here's one for you with sloth and torpor. This is a good one, and this was this was from my own practice. Um, It happened pretty recently, uh, where in the winter um, I I worked with this hindrance in a in a new way, in a way that I hadn't really seen before. I had gone to the to the beach to write, and um, I had all these agendas. You know, this uh, I set up this period of time. I'm going to go down there. I've got to work on this writing, and um, you know, this is my list. My my, this is this is what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to do it, and I'm going to, you know, I even had like a schedule. You know, wake up at this time, start at this time, do this, do that. You know, really just kind of structuring the whole thing in. And um, when I, the thing is though, that when I got down there, I didn't want to do any of it. I did, I did, I just didn't want to do it you know, I couldn't, it's like, yeah, I I could see, yeah, there's the schedule, there it is, you know, (laughs) there's the to-do list, (laughs) nothing crossed off, you know, I didn't want to do any of it, and and at first, I mean, really, for not, not for very long, but at first, it was like, you lazy thing, you know, get your act together, get some discipline going, you've invested a lot of time, you've invested a lot of money, this is important, get going, you know, that kind of attitude. But, I mean, I've learned through the years of practice, uh -uh. (laughs) I don't don't listen to those voices anymore, you know, you can't can't trust them, you know, they're they're the tyrannical patriarchs, you know, you just (laughs) got to shut up and wait a second, let me just kind of clear the air, clear the space, and see what 's going on here, you know, so back off You're, this is interesting. you don 't want to do it. you know what 's going on here and Fortunately, I was at the ocean i like to I like to go um, for me, my mind can get very contracted, very, very tight around things, and i've discovered um, just from the years of practice that it's very, very conducive for me to be in spaces where I have big vistas, you know. That, that that just helps me tremendously. Like if I'm at the water's edge or on the top of a mountain or like out in Kansas, you know, <laughs> something like that where, where you can see for miles, that that, um, it, it just facilitates a spaciousness in, in my mind. And so I, I would do that. I just would look out at the ocean and, and let the expanse of that visual arena um, help put that kind of space in my mind. And, and from this new point, rather than buying into these self-critical um, thoughts, you know, the self-denigrating thoughts, um, I, I, I began to see this driven quality. You know, there's this, like this, there's this thing that wanted to do, that wanted to be, that wanted to be on top of things, that had an agenda. You know, and oh, I just could feel the energy of this state of mind, and it became. Began to become aware in a way that I had never really seen it before of an incredible compulsion to work. You know, an, an, an incredible compulsion or need to identify myself with something that was big and important. You know, and if I, and, and that, that that's where I derived my identity. And that it, when I began to see it, I could th- reflect back and see that my whole life was like that. It's like compulsive work modes, you know, and just really like not reflecting on that, not having it come, not having work come from a place of of an arising within me, but more like a a driving down, you know, like a like an idea, a thought that I had to. Um, subscribe to or I had to follow through on in order to be who I am, you know, in order to be somebody. And I had never really seen this before, you know, but it was huge. It was this incredible compulsion. And so I just kept sitting with that, you know, it was like, you know, like a, a burp wanting to happen, you know, or like, you know, wanting to, to this just this drive that didn't want to stop. And I just kept softening and relaxing around it. And it it was like I put that, um, looking at it, suddenly it's like it became more interesting to look at that than to believe or to fight the self-critical thoughts that were telling me I was lazy. And actually I discovered I wasn't lazy, I wasn't being lazy at all. I was actually doing a lot of things. I just wasn't doing the things that I discerned were important, you know. So it wasn't it wasn't sloth and torpor, but if I had believed my mind, my self-criticism, I would have, I would have, you know, made myself do this work, and what would have come out of it would have been very, very different, I'm sure. So what happened instead was, out of this spaciousness, which I let happen for several months, just kind of keep opening to it, opening to it. Then, very similar to my friend with the sitting, you know, it it was like this thing started to arise out of me. You know, it was like what, I I began to do it, but it was coming from a very different place. It it was like a a, a self-expression or a creativity, you know. It was like something wanted to be written and it it was coming, it, it could arise in that spaciousness. But before that, it wouldn't have, you know, it, it's a, it was an amazing lesson for me. And also, I wouldn't have learned about this compulsive mind state, incredible compulsive need to do, to work, to be on top of things. And actually, I think a lot of the resistance to that, as I watched it, I saw, sort of that, the resistance to that or the, not wanting to go with that actually is what often made me get into very lazy states. (laughs) It was like it was too overwhelming. You know, I had this huge list and uh, (laughs) I can't can't do it. I'm just gonna go watch a movie, you know. (laughs) Or or, you know, it's just all these ideas about who to be. And that would actually be I would react to that with, with a laziness, you know? Interesting. But I learned I learned a whole lot about it. Maybe just do a little bit on restlessness and worry. And, and and I wanted to leave some time if you had some questions. So um, this one's a big one, restlessness and worry, isn't it? You know? <laughs> it's huge. And uh, I think it's actually very comforting to know um, that it's the last uh, of the difficult states to go you know, it doesn't go to the fourth stage of enlightenment, so, <laughs> it, you know, I, fu- actually, I found that very comforting to realize. <laughs> it's like you- I could relax around it, you know, it's like, it's that agitated energy is going to be with us a long time, so, you know, you've got to learn to dance with it, you know, get comfortable with it. You know, it comes out of, um, you know, not accepting things as they are, you know, or um, trying to make things more stable that aren't, Resisting uncomfortable situations, you know, there's there's a lot of different reasons why that state will come up, um, and and so, but the thing is, we're very quick to pounce on it when it does, and you know what happens when you do that is like, it's like agitated states create more agitated states. You know, Buddha even talked about it as um, I forget how he put it, something like. Any moment that you don't see worry and flurry in the mind, you create new worry and flurry. And any time you resist or react to worry and flurry, you create fresh worry and flurry, you know? It's like, so it's just, it's, of, if any, of any state, this thing just is like a hamster's wheel, you know? It just keeps feeding itself and feeding itself and feeding itself. It's like we're agitated, that we're agitated, you know? Very, very strong state of mind. Uh, so, you know, if, if we think, oh, 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 well, this is a hindrance, and then what you do is you tend to, to, to block a certain response, you know, and, and you just kind of force uh, more of the same kind of state. And actually, I think it's very important to consider that sometimes this state of mind is actually arising because something's wrong something's off and we're not seeing it, you know, but if we're always squashing it, saying, oh, see, it's a mental hindrance, I've got to get rid of it, then we're not going to tune into this other side to something that's a little bit off. Something needs to be attended to. Like, you know, just a mundane example where you go on vacation and you think you left the stove on, you know, and you get oh, I'm so nervous. Oh, You know, if you say, well, this is just a mental hindrance, you know, <laughs> you burn the house down, you know. <laughs> it's like you, you've got, we've got to tune into the possibility that there really is something that needs attention. So um, uh, here, here's a story where a friend was telling me uh, about um, a certain person that made them very ag- agitated and aggravated. And it was somebody at work. And every time they got in the presence of this person, they just got very restless and and very agitated. So when we examined it, we actually began to see it didn't take long to realize that there was something that this person was doing at work that was not okay. It was not okay. And it was my friend's responsibility. They were the boss. It was their responsibility to address it. You know, when when this when this uh, bad behavior, and so the agitation which he was saying was this person, you know, that he, this person was making him restless, was actually the, an agitation that was in response to the displeasure and the dis ease that he was feeling about having to address this situation, you know, and and that that's what was making him so nervous, you know. So once he saw that, then he was able to go, "Oh, okay, now, wait a minute this This is something that actually needs to be addressed." And so it's like the restlessness, what one might have called restlessness, was actually the voice of wisdom. It was actually another factor of enlightenment you know that he wasn't listening to. you know aversion, this this getting away from things. You know, this is really interesting. You look at this energy of aversion. It actually operates very much like wisdom. And and the, and they're actually the same thing. It's like wisdom is like a, a purification of that same energy. You know, wisdom knows not to go into places that are harmful. You know, so it has this. Can you feel that? It's, it, 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 it pushes away. And so, you know, if we're really quick to label things aversion we're gonna, we can miss wisdom, you know. It's something is telling us, do something about this situation. So just this kind of looking requires a certain discernment. You know, we have to be able to discern with relation to the hindrances. You know, it could be something that that needs our attention. So just um, handling the the hindrances. um, Just remembering that that this you know a hindrance is something that blocks our energy. It it kind of closes things all up. We get caught up in a loop that doesn't go anywhere, and um, it overwhelms us with energy and it will take us in the wrong direction. So handling these things can be can be tricky. And as mature practitioners, we have to know that you can't say that just because the mind is is moving forward that it's always greed. You, know, just, just, you, you notice the subtle movements of the mind. It moves towards, it moves away. But it's not always sensual desire. It's not always greed. You know, sometimes it's just a happiness with pleasant things. And you can't say that because it's a retreating that it's caught up in aversion or doubt or confusion. So this suggests then, I think, that investigation is the name of the game it, it, it kind of, you started to get a sense of the importance of investigation. If we can't know for sure what a state is until we've looked into it, then let's look into it. You know, don't be too quick to say we know what's going on. And just, you know, I mean, the, the factor of enlightenment of interest and a certain delight in doing that and awareness and a, and a poise, an equipoise in relation to the state, not hating a state... This is all really good stuff. That's when I think, I mean, sometimes I I wonder what I used to do on the meditation cushion before I looked at mind states, you know? It must not have been very interesting at all, you know? We we can look at these things. We can learn about them. So our tendency is always to to say it shouldn't be happening or or, or something like that, and um, these kinds of thoughts will disempower us in practice, you know? It shouldn't be happening. It is happening. You know, and our, uh, our role or our task, if you will, as meditators is to find out what it is, to shed some light on it, to uh, look into it, see how it operates, see the consequence of being in it, see the consequence of not being in it, and see when it isn't, it. don't be too quick to say what it is. See when um, it is a hindrance and see when it's not. So, when we stop reacting to what we think are hindrances, you know, to these movements of the mind, um, you, you know, you begin to see that things might not be what they appear to be. So, what, can, what appears to be sensual desire can actually be an appreciation of beauty. Just that much. Can that be okay? You know, can we, can we find a way that that can be okay? Or just simply happiness. You could be happy. <laughs> it's great. Uh, what appears to be aversion can actually be sort of this still small voice of wisdom, you know, telling us that to be careful, there's danger, there's danger somewhere, something's difficult. What what appears to be sloth and torpor may actually be like a certain spaciousness in the mind that's really equanimity, you know, like my, my the way that I was with this state was like actually spacious and open. It wasn't I wasn't being lazy. I was opening to a mind state. You know, receiving it. And and what can feel like restlessness and worry could actually be pointing to things that need stabilizing, that need our attention, that need to be addressed. So just to get a sense of these things, you know, for ourselves. Uh, We don't have to sort things out. We don't have to get rid of the hindrances. We don't have to do that. All we have to do is relax and attend and take an interest in what's going on. And if things are hurting us and hurting other people, we'll know it from our investigation. And we'll be able to move beyond it because the experience of something that's hurting us and hurting other people, um, will it it hurts. (laughs) It's painful. And the heart will learn not to go there. You know, it's it's all like a dance. (laughs) It's all very... uh, easy at one level. Isn't it? So these are some thoughts for you tonight. I, I hope they're helpful and see if you have some thoughts of your own or perhaps some questions. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I find that because I have things I want to accomplish going to the beach to do this writing, for example, like mm-hmm. and I have it on this agenda deadline for it. And I allow myself spaciousness to not do it on that day, it might not happen and then there are consequences of that. And if I tell myself I need to investigate which one this is, then I get to add the additional factor of see, you're just doing this investigation (laughs) to avoid (laughs) doing (laughs) it. Don't you just want to lay your head on the railroad track? (laughs) Oh, God. Me and Anna Karenina, I really began to appreciate what she did. (laughs) Oh, God, when I saw that, I said, yeah, I know that one. Oh, yeah, can't get out of your own head. Yeah. That's the time to replace it. Replace what's going on with something else. You know, there's this wonderful sutta called the removal of distracting thought. I think it's uh, Majima Nikaya Ten. I think. Anyway, what, that's one of the things. One of the, you know, the, sometimes it just, <laughs> and uh, you have to um, uh, replace. Just like, like, yeah, like, like a, like a child that's hurting itself. You know. You, um, uh, you know, it's got a toy that it, it keeps hurting itself with or something. You take the toy away and give it something else. Yeah. I find that in the difficult states, I'm not quite sure if I because I go to a place of suffering. And it's not suffering because I want um, I don't think it's that I want to get rid of it. It's the fact I'm sitting in it. Mm. And it feels mm-hmm. like suffering. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I'm attaching to the suffering. versus, you know what at what point is it not useful? Yeah, right, right. That's a good point. At what point is it not useful if you stay with a state and she's concerned that she's attached? Yeah, right, right. And that's, I mean, that just comes from experience and experiment. I mean, if it has a sort of a woe-is-me tone to it, you know, then it could probably be um, that you're caught up in it. But if it's, like, um, painful, I I actually, there was a point, like, about ten years ago where I just started to see that as one of the most helpful points of practice that I could engage in. And that was like to, I, I began to see that I was learning much more from feeling what it felt like to be in these states of mind than anything else. You know, it, it, and so that, that gave me a certain faith to just, you know, what is it? It feels, uh you know, and I, I'd actually exaggerate what I felt like in it sometimes, you know so that it would make an impression. So I'd really feel it. Like, I think that the the states are uncomfortable and when we get into them, then too quickly we move out of that discomfort. But you know, the first noble truth is opening to suffering. And uh, you know, we don't get, you don't get free. You know, it it struck me at one point that um, insight into dukkha was not gonna be pleasant, you know. Uh, but yet you don't get free without it, you know. So just go ahead and dare to feel that, the suffering that you feel, that's the suffering that puts an end to suffering, you know. That's the good kind of suffering. You want that one. (laughs) Yeah, so trust it. Why does our mind like to sabotage ourselves so so much? Resist things that we know are right. Meditation. Yeah. Why do we sabotage that? Yeah. Well, uh, this is a good question. It's, it's. Uh, I, I think it's important to contemplate the extent of our ignorance. Hmm. <laughs> it really is. It's. It's. We're really out to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> And we don't get it, you know. So it's like it's uh, contemplate that. And I, actually, that's another one of those like restlessness, where, where when I contemplate it, and and just open to the truth of that, there's a release. There's a relief. It's like, oh, well, no wonder, no wonder I suffer so much. I, I really am out to lunch. But it's not. I mean, there seems to be this connection. I know that meditation makes, makes me feel better and yeah. feel more calm, but yet sometimes I'm a Right, and I think that that's a good point, because that's the story that I was telling you about my friend, where um, it, we get it intellectually, but the experience of meditation is direct, has to be direct. So that, um, that we actually don't quite get it when we get it just at that level. You have to feel it, feel the pain of not meditating. Feel what it feels like when you let your practice go. And that's where I say, you know, dare to give that apparent sloth and torpor a little slack, give it a little play, and, but keep paying attention and feel what it feels like. It's that kind of knowing it's the knowing of direct experience that gets us on track. That—that's really it. Yeah, I didn't mean to be flippant about the ignorance. Yeah. Well, I think if if people have more questions, perhaps you can stay. And uh, uh, it, I'd like to let people go if you want. Okay? It's a, it's a, a little bit after nine, and I know people like have busy lives, so. Thank you for your attention tonight. Thank you for your practice. And if you have any more questions, I'll stay a little bit, okay? Be well.